All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, let me get straight to my guest because it's super interesting. Joining me now is Brian Fallon. Uh, he was the press secretary for Hillary Clinton during 2016 run. He's currently the executive director of Demand Justice. Brian, welcome to the Young Turks. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Um, so Brian, I wanna talk a lot about Demand Justice, but in order to do that, we gotta talk about the context of uh, who you were and who you are now. Uh, so um, let's start with the, the Clinton years. So you, you worked with Hillary Clinton on her presidential campaign, one of her top advisors. Um, what did you believe back then uh, that led you to so strongly advocate for Hillary Clinton? Well, I believe that we'd be in a much different place today if Hillary Clinton were the president of the United States. And I actually think um, she would have governed as much more of a progressive than a lot of people thought during that campaign. I thought that the primary campaign was a very useful exercise in terms of moving the direction of the party leftward. And I think that the, um, the platform that we as a party actually coalesced around during the week of the convention really represented a mile marker in terms of moving the direction of the party to the left. I think uh, Hillary would have governed in a way that would have surprised a lot of people in terms of the sort of progressive um, ethos that she would have brought to the White House. I yeah. think that she, she would have she would have encountered, though, I think a lot of challenges that are right now masked by Trump being the president. So, for instance, I think that, you know, that Scalia seat might very well still be vacant if Hillary were the president today, because I don't think Republicans would have, you know, uh, given a fair hearing to her nominee for that seat, just like they didn't to Barack Obama. And so I think when people like Vice President Biden go around acting like there'll be an epiphany on the part of Republicans if we just defeat Trump, I think that's a mistaken view. I think Hillary was clear-eyed about the fact that the the challenges that we face as a party um, are systemic, and that Trump is more of a symptom rather than the cause of you know what's breaking our politics today. So, Brian, that's really interesting. I didn't expect you to say that, so I want to actually spend one more minute on it. I'm just going to note for fun that you said you the primary was a good process. You guys didn't seem to have that opinion back in 2016 and 2015, but I, I appreciate that you think that today. Uh, but you said that Hillary Clinton would uh, have governed more progressively than people uh, imagined. Uh, I don't, I, I don't doubt what you're saying. I'm just fascinated by it. Why do you say that? What didn't we know about Hillary Clinton? Well, I think that, for instance, on an issue like immigration, I think she would have done a lot to sort of stymie the uh, deportation first approach uh, that we saw in the Obama administration, where there was an effort to try to seem so reasonable to Republicans in emphasizing a border security mantra that, in the views of many immigration advocates, we sort of got the balance wrong. I think she would have done uh, a lot to try to undo that and to have a more humanitarian-based approach to our immigration policy. I think on criminal justice reform, she would have made tremendous strides. And you know, I think that one thing that gets overlooked about the way that she comported herself in the general election is she went around talking about, you know, white supremacy and systemic racism all the way through the general election in ways that I think people were skeptical of at the time in terms of the idea that it might spur a backlash in you know, Midwestern states that were critical in the general election. But she was openly talking about that. And I think she would have brought that you know, mindfulness to her governing approach in the White House. So I think those are like two examples of issues where 
I think she would have been, you know, yeah. a, a real progressive in ways that would have turned the debate on its head in a couple of those issues. Yeah, you know, now that you state that, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would disagree with that at all. But those don't touch corporate interests, and that's why it makes it a little bit easier. But, uh, but now with demand justice, uh, you, you become a much, well, I don't want to say stronger advocate, but <laughs> I'm going to because I'm a progressive, and that's how I view it. Uh, for for fighting against Republicans and not compromising, etc. So, what happened after the election to push you in that direction? A direction that a lot of your uh, former Democratic colleagues are not comfortable with. Well, you know, I was somebody that after the election, I was surprised by how quickly a lot of elements within the mainstream of the Democratic Party, who had spent so many months in 2016 talking about the unique threat to our democracy that Trump represented, all of a sudden pivot to being willing to work with him and to try to seem um, like Trump was a normal guy to occupy the Oval Office. So literally in the like two weeks after Trump was elected, you started to see statements emanate from top Democrats in Washington that they were looking forward to working with him on things like infrastructure. and. So I don't feel like you know my approach changed from the fall of 2016 in terms of how we spoke about Donald Trump and the unique threat he represented. But I feel like after the election, based on 80,000 votes going, you know, the wrong way in in three states, all of a sudden Democrats felt the need to sort of seem like they were going to work with Trump as opposed to opposing Trump, and. Two years, two and a half years later, I feel like in many ways we're in the same place. We're still seeing, you know, the Democratic leadership feel the need to go and have photo op style meetings in the Oval Office about infrastructure at a time when I think that they should be drawing a stark contrast with Trump and battling him over the fact that they're defying subpoenas and that they're frustrating any attempts to do oversight in the House. So, you know, my perspective in the last two and a half years has been one motivated by a desire to see uh, more of an aggressive approach to confronting this president, um, more of a recognition of what I think will be the lasting legacy of this president's time in office, which is not any one piece of legislation, but I think the makeover he's conducting of the third branch of government, the federal judiciary. Um, and in general, I feel like there's a lot of people in Washington, D.C. that are paid to think only in two-year increments in terms of always thinking about the next election. And our party would be wise to put more attention on the idea of a five-year, 10-year window in terms of trying to build a movement and build public support for ideas that we think can be transformational in terms of actually helping people. So, Brian, uh, I made the argument for a long time to the great annoyance of Democratic leadership. Um, well, if they noticed it at all, uh, that uh, they're weak uh, and they're constantly compromising, constantly keeping their goddamn powder dry. Uh, and if you don't use your powder on Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, Jesus Christ, when are you ever going to use your powder? So, have what is your current? Uh, mode of thinking about the relative weakness or strength of democratic leadership? So I can understand, you know, I worked for six years in the Senate for um, now Minority Leader Schumer, and I, um, I can understand the mindset uh, of congressional Democrats right now. And that is, if I could sort of do justice to it for a second, uh, Democrats are the party that believes in government. And so in general, we like to see it work 
and we're loath to sort of engage in tactics that will undermine faith in government or try to just blow things up. Whereas Mitch McConnell is somebody that, you know, does not believe in uh, the federal government's ability to fix things or improve people's lives. And so he's happy to take sort of a nihilist approach and be completely an obstructionist and try to frustrate any good faith effort to improve things. Um, and that redounds to his benefit because government, uh, you know, Republicans would love to just strangle government in the crib. So I think that's what accounts for the asymmetry that you see in the approach taken by Democrats versus Republicans. But I think we're we're sort of reaching a tipping point now where the willingness of Republicans to engage in what you know some scholars would describe as constitutional hardball has reached a point where if Democrats don't respond in kind, then our democracy is really in peril. And when people refer to constitutional hardball, they, were, they mean things like what Mitch McConnell did to block the uh, appointment of Merrick Garland to that vacant seat in 2016. Something that is technically you know, within the bounds of the Constitution, but just violates every norm that usually governs how the two parties conduct themselves. In uh, it's basically the equivalent of trying to play a pickup basketball game and then completely just trying to take somebody's legs out from under them as they go up for a layup. Like, yeah, that might help you win that game, but that that person's not going to want to come back and play pickup basketball with you the next day. And but if but Democrats keep showing up for that proverbial pickup game the next day, even after the Republicans play dirty. And yeah. if Democrats don't at some point sort of engage in kind and respond in the way that Republicans are playing the game, then Republicans never have an incentive to change their manner of doing business. So on something like the Supreme Court, um, you know, there are a group like ours is trying to foster and cultivate a conversation in the Democratic primary about, you know, thinking big about structural reforms to the court, because otherwise to do otherwise is to let Mitch McConnell pocket the gains of his tactic that he did in 2016 to block that seat um, from being filled with Barack Obama's choice, Merrick Garland. Um, and to consign ourselves to a 20 to 30 year future where the Republicans have a permanent 5-4 majority that will be hostile to you know, anything that a Democratic president may seek to pass uh, for the foreseeable future. And if you believe that there is something rotten about how we got to this place, then you need to open your minds to the idea of doing some kind of restructuring to the court as an institution when we regain power. So there's many proposals out there. And people have been debating the merits of individual proposals. But our point as an organization is you can't just accept the status quo anymore. You need to be willing to think boldly because simply just trying to win the next election and nominating people in due course when vacancies arise will not fundamentally alter the revamping of the judiciary that has happened under Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. So Brian, I agree with your fighting attitude. And so for example, on gerrymandering, well, okay, Supreme Court says it's okay. So all the red states gerrymander it to their benefit. Uh, and all the blue states sit on their hands uh, and don't do a goddamn thing. Uh, so as you can tell, I'm animated by all this and you're animated enough that you started this group. And so I would tell all the blue state governors, gerrymander the living hell out of your states. Make sure that there's only one Republican that comes out of those blue states to the best of your ability. Not because I believe in gerrymandering, I hate gerrymandering, but unilateral disarmament isn't working, you know. I don't know when they're gonna get that memo. And if you heard them enough in the blue states that are gigantic, like California and New York, etc., 
then perhaps they come to the negotiating table and we have an actual negotiation rather than the constant surrender that we're getting from the Democrats. And and so, but I, I do wanna challenge your, I, well, let's put it this way. I have an alternate alternative theory on, on why the Democrats keep surrendering. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think that it's because they love government and they wanna protect the cherished institutions of government, whereas the Republicans are nihilist. No, the Republicans love government when it works for their donors. So that's why they use big government to get the tax cuts, deregulation, more wars, etc. And the reason Democrats don't fight them is because they have similar donors. And the donors say, no, I just want you to be decent to black people and gay people and keep on going with my tax cuts and deregulation. So they're paid to lose. So I actually, um, I want to agree with you in a certain sense on that, Cenk. Um, and uh, let me say that you know one area that my new group concerns itself with is, is judicial nominations. And we're particularly interested in what kind of judicial nominations are we gonna get from the next Democratic president if we win in 2020? And by that, I mean, you know, First of all, we're already screwed by virtue of what Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are doing. So Donald Trump inherited about 100 plus vacancies because of the work that Mitch McConnell had done in blocking Obama from filling a bunch of seats. So Donald Trump walked in with an opportunity to remake the judiciary right from the jump because he had 100 vacancies to fill before anybody even retired or died. The next Democratic president is not going to inherit a situation anywhere close to that. What they're going to have is the opportunity to sort of tread water by refilling the seats of Democratic appointed judges that decide finally now I can retire or take semi-retired status now that there's a Democrat in office. But even when it comes to filling those vacancies when Democratic appointed judges retire, our group wants to try to stoke a conversation about what should be an ideal type of judge that the next Democratic president nominates to fill those seats. And I can tell you one thing that we want to avoid or steer away from, which has been the trend under past Democratic administrations, which is to fill the ranks of the federal bench with former corporate lawyers that have represented corporate interests as their day job for years upon years. And that has been the way that they've built a career in the legal profession, as opposed to say, having lawyers that worked at the National Labor Relations Board representing workers' interests against you know, corporations that are trying to expand the use of forced arbitration or gut the collective, collective bargaining power of labor organizations. Um, they, why do corporate lawyers tend to have a leg up even in democratic administrations when it comes to judicial vacancies for a number of reasons? One is, Uh, They tend to be compensated well in their positions at corporate law firms, and therefore they're more likely to inhabit the ranks of political donors and thus come into the orbit of senators that are in positions to nominate people to the White House or suggest people for nomination to different vacancies. They also um, tend to have gone to the elite Ivy League institutions and law schools where they might have, you know, rubbed shoulders with people like Michael Bennett that went to Yale Law School. And so they have those sort of connections to people that are in a position to put in a good word for them when a vacancy arises. But for whatever reason, these people are sort of tops on the list. What it creates is a judiciary that is completely out of balance in terms of representing the legal profession as a whole. And we have Democratic and Republican presidents alike nominating corporate lawyers by and large or or former prosecutors. If you look at Barack Obama's 
nominations and you, and you add them all up, I think 80 plus percent of them were either former prosecutors or corporate lawyers. And oh, what, you don't have, what you don't have represented is, like I said, labor lawyers, nonprofit lawyers from organizations like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund or the ACLU. You don't have progressive academics that are writing some of the big think pieces about how to shift the paradigm in terms of thinking of corporate power. So this is a project that I think we should all make a cause out of in terms of trying to put pressure on the next Democratic president to not just prioritize judicial nominations when they get into office, but to think boldly in terms of the types of progressives they want to install on the bench and make them be a true counter to the pro-corporate judges that Trump is installing throughout the judiciary. Now you're talking my language, Brian. <laughs> okay, uh, so no wonder they're calling you a radical and a turncoat. Uh, what's that? I said I knew we'd get there eventually. <laughs> uh, no, but listen, guys, what Brian is saying is so important. Uh, and, and I talked about this in the case of the Supreme Court many times on the show. So even the Democrats brag about how they put business friendly justices on the Supreme Court. That's not a thing to brag about. Uh, and by the way, it's also not politically popular. The Democrats have lost the ability to read a poll. Big business is the only thing that polls worse than politicians and the media. And But the fact is, those are their top donors. That's why they never speak ill of big business. That's why it's nonstop corporate lawyers in the judiciary. That's why we have corporations that now are considered human beings and have the right to bribe our politicians. They made bribery legal and we're still having this conversation. Should we have a litmus test for the Supreme Court that you be against Citizens United? God damn, yes, we should. It's not even close. So I love what Demand Justice is doing. Demandjustice.org to check it out more. Demandjustice.org. But Brian, I'm, we've got more time. So I want to talk more about your uh, both your strategy and, and, and the execution of it. Speaking of uh, people in Washington starting to call you radical, uh, partly because you're taking on some of their sacred cows. And I, I it's funny because I use Michael Bennett as an example often because he's such a nice guy. So when I talk about corruption, I, I, I always make a distinction. Trump does personal corruption. Guys like Michael Bennett are perfectly lovely people who are part of the systemic corruption. They, in the words of Professor Larry Lessig, they lean to the green. And, and I don't think they even do it consciously. I, I think that it's become part of the system. So you have a, a slightly different issue with Michael Bennett, but even taking on someone like Michael Bennett, who's so well liked in Washington, is going to get you a lot of critique, uh, no matter how right you are. So what, what's your issue with Senator Bennett? So you're absolutely right. I mean, Michael Bennett, somebody whose constituency is sort of the centrist establishment class in DC. He is somebody that Joe Scarborough has said that Democrats would be wise to nominate. Um, but if you look at you know, Michael Bennett's approach on some of these questions that we've been talking about. So if you look at his approach, for instance, to Trump's judges who are Federalist Society members, they are pro-corporate judges that want to restore a vision of America that is very much a pre-New Deal uh, version of America where you know, uh, minimum wage laws and child labor laws would be brought into question by some of the legal theories being promoted by the Federalist Society today. 
And yet Michael Bennett is somebody that is voting for these Federalist Society members that Trump is putting forward two thirds of the time. Um, he is somebody that when you ask him about his willingness to engage in more constitutional hardball with the Republicans, he bangs his head on the table at the idea that Democrats would get tough and consider changes to the formal rules of the Senate, like the, like the legislative filibuster, which is going to sap the next Democratic president of any ability to you know, make good on all the promises that they're making during this primary campaign right now. And so you know, that he is somebody that represents a type of thinking that we need to break free of if we're ever going to make progressive change working through a counter-majoritarian body like the United States Senate. And um, you know, just to make the point even more specifically about the types of judges that we should be leaning against in the future that I think you know, are, are just fine by Michael Bennett's standards right now. You know, if you look at somebody like um, Neil Cantiel, who's a very prominent critic of Donald Trump and is a constant presence on MSNBC as a legal analyst in the context of the Mueller investigation. And he's actually, you know, he had a very prominent role under Barack Obama's Justice Department. He was the acting solicitor general. So he was the administration's top advocate for a period of time before the United States Supreme Court. And um, in the Trump years, he's actually taken the progressive side of a bunch of big cases, like for instance, he argued against the Trump administration's travel ban. But he's also you know, the top litigator for one of DC's biggest corporate law firms, and that's his day job. And in that capacity, uh, last Supreme Court term, not 2019, but in 2018, he was one of the chief lawyers uh, representing big corporate employers that were trying to say that corporations should have the power to force workers as a condition of their employment to sign away their ability to engage in class actions if their employer engages in, engages in wage theft or uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. And he's somebody that in previous years um, was working, arguing against collective bargaining rights for labor organizations in two of the cases that sort of led to the Janus decision that happened in 2018, which was a huge setback for labor organizations. And so He's an example of somebody that will appear on MSNBC and criticize Trump in the context of the Russian investigation and the Mueller probe. But by day, he's happy to go represent big corporate interests at the expense of workers in this country. And, and yet he will probably be, unless we succeed in disrupting this debate and, and moving us away from a style of thinking that I think people like Michael Bennett represent, he will probably be at the top of... Uh, the shortlist for the next Democratic president, unless we seek to change and alter that debate and make his work as a corporate lawyer seeking to hurt collective bargaining rights in this country a liability for him. Um, so that's the type of debate that we're trying to change. That's the type of paradigm that we're trying to shift. And people like Michael Bennett in the Senate represent that sort of outmoded way of thinking. People like Neil Katyal is the type of a uh, shortlister that we don't want to see the next Democratic president prioritize. So that's the type of debate that we're trying to have here and the conversation that we're trying to shift. So listen, whenever there's a judicial issue, I hope you'll come back on the show and, and talk it through with us and talk about strategy and what the audience can do to help, uh, especially if Democratic president wins before the nomination. After the nomination, uh, it's too late. We have to have the conversation and, and set the playing field before that. We're out of time here, but Brian, I gotta ask you one more question. Because if you talk about being proactive and making the decisions ahead of time, 
so that it's not too late by the time the next president nominates someone. Um, then I gotta ask, who do you think among these different candidates uh, is the candidate most likely to take that tough stance, take the fight to the Republicans, appoint the right kind of justices? I'm not asking who you're gonna vote for, I haven't made up my mind either. But according to this issue about the justices, and but you know the filibuster is also relevant, right? I'd end the filibuster in the first second of office. I'd put it in my inauguration speech. But a lot of the candidates aren't there yet. So who do you think is best equipped under your standards on this issue? Yeah, so to me, I think the best way to observe the primary and how it's being waged is along sort of two axes, if you will, change. On the one sense, I measure people on an ideological spectrum in terms of how left or right their proposals are on the ideological spectrum. But then I also like to take stock of people in terms of their willingness to fight and their and how much they believe that the system needs a shakeup. And, um, and I think that both of those two criteria are equally important. So you can have candidates that might have very progressive ideas, but they become institutionalists when it comes to what type of havoc they're willing to wreak in order to get their priorities through. Um, and so I want a candidate who is both willing to fight for real progressive policies and then will accompany that with a real sort of shake things up attitude and is willing to um, toss norms aside and is willing to get rid of the filibuster, is willing to contemplate structural reform in the Supreme Court, is on the record saying that we should get rid of the Electoral College. You know, so I, I think I'm open to like three or four candidates still at this point, but there's definitely some candidates that I'm ruling out because I think that they're too tepid on that latter you know, criteria in terms of they, they're ruling out um, getting rid of the filibuster, they're ruling out structural reform to the Supreme Court, and they're talking you know, I think in a very naive way about their ability to bring Republicans along and get them to compromise. And so yeah. uh, that's why I think, you know, somebody like the vice president is going to have some challenges in, in terms of motivating people. Um, his support right now is very strong, but there's a possibility that if he keeps having performances like the one he did last month in the debate, that that support could wane. And I think that there's a real legitimate opportunity for some other candidates to inspire and to have a little bit more intensity to their support. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the next few months play out. But in terms of who, who I'm looking to, I want to see somebody that is both a progressive on policy and also a fighter when it comes to trying to enact structural reforms. Look, uh, Bernie Sanders has not been great on the filibuster, but otherwise he appears to be the person you're describing. So are you saying you're open to voting for Bernie Sanders? Well, Sanders is, it's so strange to me that he's such an institutionalist on the filibuster. And because I know some of his top aides in the campaign, and I know that they have no love for the filibuster. So I think it might be just a matter of time before Sanders evolves on his position there. He's already started to step out and say that he might be willing to entertain creative uses of the reconciliation rules. Um, and on Supreme Court, uh, he, he's been skeptical of adding seats, but he has suggested an open-mindedness to a reform idea um, where you would make the Supreme Court a, a rotating panel rather than a fixed body of the current nine justices. And, you know, I'm open-minded to a bunch of different approaches. I just want to hear somebody that will argue for something other than the status quo when it comes to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, 
So I think Sanders is somebody that's speaking to that willingness to shake things up. I think Warren is somebody that is speaking to the willingness to shake things up. And I actually think, you know, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, even though he's in one sense projecting himself as a candidate of rural America because he happens to come from Indiana, on the other hand, he's argued for getting rid of the filibuster, abolishing the Electoral College, and he's the only person so far that has put out a specific plan to drastically redo the makeup of the Supreme Court. So I think he's actually one of the most radical people in terms of structural change, even though his packaging is very moderate. Yeah, also a lot of his policies are moderate. So he's a mixed bag, he's an interesting guy, and you're right. Uh, his positions on structural change are fascinating. And he's yeah. actually one of the few people uh, that aggressively calls out the Supreme Court decisions that led us in the wrong direction. And not just Citizens United, but going back to Buckley v. Vallejo and Bilotti. So he's pretty educated on all that, brilliant guy, uh, but does have a lot of uh, actual uh, conservative positions. Uh, Warren probably best matches with your description, but it is in a sense heartening to see you as a press secretary for Hillary Clinton being open to Bernie Sanders at all as a candidate. And so maybe that's a little big beginning of the of the healing of some of those wounds as well from that time. And I'm a big believer, Cenk, in the primary as a good opportunity that the party should leverage for trying to mainstream you know, discussion around certain issues and policy solutions that we think would legitimately, you know, effectuate progressive change, but that need more conversation in order to make popular. And I think the idea of using the 18 month period of the primary to sort of uh, facilitate those discussions is a useful thing. So I chafe it the attempts to sort of shut down those dialogues and preemptively say that, oh, that's going to make someone, uh, you know, unelectable in a general election if we speak, you know, too forthrightly about the fact that we might want to evolve our system one day to a single payer system. I think like now, if now's not the time to have those conversations, when is, there will always yeah. be an election around the corner. And so, you know, I, as a group that was very involved in the Kavanaugh fight, I confronted Democratic strategists and consultants that were arguing that the Kavanaugh fight was net unhelpful for the midterms and we should really tone it down. And and now those same people are urging us to tamp down on a discussion of Supreme Court reform because they worry about how it would situate us for the 2020 general election. And I say to them, geez, guys, you know, if I go by your advice, I'll never spark a conversation about the Supreme Court. We'll never have a fight on this because there's always an election, you know, two years around the corner. So I'm of somebody course. who thinks it's I'm somebody that it thinks that there has to be some people out there paying attention to cultivating a movement, building public support for important policy reforms. And if the presidential primary window is not the time for that, when is? There's never the time. The Democrats never want to fight because they're paid to lose. Um, so anyway, but now there's strong progressives both in the presidential primary and finally in Congress. So it is a, a whole new world and I, and I think that uh, Brian's a, a big part of that and an indicator of that. So uh, I love the work that you're doing at Demand Justice. Everybody check out demandjustice.org. And Brian Fallon, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity and the platform to discuss our work here at Demand Justice. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yep. All right, guys, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're gonna have fun. Um, the last half hour of the Young Turks, you know, is just for members. Brenner looks gonna join me and we're gonna discuss a very angry mom at, uh, is it Disneyland or Disney World? At Disneyland, yeah, and she thinks that uh, people, Women without children going to Disneyland are sluts. What? <laughs> what 
the hell is that about? So we will share that with you in the post game and have a little bit of fun. We we do some serious stuff. We do some light stuff, as you all know, on the Young Turks. So in order to become a member, tyt.com/join. And for those of you who are not members, I'm going to see you tomorrow in Detroit. Don't forget to come to the rally, tyt.com/rally. All right, we'll see you in a minute if you're a member.